Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Being on that field. <clears throat> you, you, you lose sleep. You hurt for your brother. Um, a lot of shared grief, but to the question before, getting updates and positive updates eases so much of that, that pain and that tension that you feel. But coach handled it. As, as perfect as anybody could. The story that everybody's talking about, and it's a global story, is the story of DeMar Hamlin and what happened Monday night in the Buffalo Bills Cincinnati Bengals NFL game. If you were watching, as I was, you know that it affected you tremendously emotionally. You saw the players, tears streaming down their faces. We couldn't really see what was going on because the players shielded. DeMar from cameras, but we know now that CPR was being conducted, and we know what that means, and uh, he was taken to hospital by ambulance in a silent stadium, and everybody's been praying for him since, and he's making significant improvement recovery, had an opportunity to talk to his teammates um, by, I think it was a Zoom call yesterday. Terry Totten knows DeMar Hamlin perhaps well as well or, or better than most. Uh, coach Totten was the football coach. He's, um, I believe, ending a 21-year career at Central Catholic High School in Pittsburgh. And uh, DeMar Hamlin tried out for the team, made the team, and made an impression on uh, Coach Totten, who joins us on the Roy Green Show. Coach, how are you? I'm fine. Yourself? I'm well, sir. How has this week been for you uh, after Monday? Uh, just as you've been describing, Mr. Green, just a complete roller coaster from uh, really, really a life and death situation, an incredibly critical uh, point. And you described so well that uh, those players knew what they were looking at. This was not a typical injury. And as soon as they, I found out he was unconscious, in a coma, I started to envision and imagine a day such as today where we have some light at the end of the tunnel and some significant improvements. I always imagined the day he would wake up and sit up and smile and hold his mother's hand and hug his little brother and recognize his father and have some family, extended family, friends, teammates around him and, and be able to breathe on his own, to be able to talk, to be able to communicate via Zoom uh, with his uh, Buffalo teammates. And so today is is somewhat of our little miracle. We've been handcuffed all week. Everybody was kind of like in purgatory. Couldn't do anything, just had to sit and wait. Couldn't do anything physically for more. And then, you know, all we could do is what you described, prayers and goodwill and hope and faith and belief uh, rising toward heaven in his name. And 
about today is kind of our little, you know, a bit of a miracle that the improvement he has made, and, and it's just an incredible feeling. Um, one that Mar has been given back the gift of life. I mean, come on, how serious is that? And secondly, that it looks like we could pull this through to a full recovery where he's allowed to pursue his dreams again, and he was living a great life reaching his goal of the National Football League, but also he, he, he gave so much back to his community and his alma maters here in Pittsburgh, and it's really just fantastic to see him have that opportunity to go back to those good things. So we're very, very excited. Coach, uh, when you first met DeMar, what, was the, what were the impressions that he made on you, and, and how did you, how did you um, uh, just watching uh, DeMar over the years that he played for you, you saw an exceptional young man, didn't you? Yes. Um, obviously, the athletic ability, the football ability was present, but he seemed to have a, a maturity beyond his years. He had a level-headedness. He had a, a quiet confidence about him. And, uh, you know, a lot of 13-year-olds will tell you, I want to play in the National Football League, but very few, him being one, were willing to block out all the noise, all the distractions, take the adversity and the success the same, and treat them both as imposters, as someone famous once said, and stay the course through to what needed to be done. Growing into a college player, high-level University of Pittsburgh, growing into a draft prospect, getting drafted, going through mini camp and all the combines. You know, he came to me quietly last two summers ago. He returns to our youth camp. He said, Coach, I will make this roster. And uh, he made the roster, and he excelled on special teams, and he got himself in the starting lineup. And, uh, you know, he has held that position until this horror unfolded Monday night. But to answer the question briefly, he was just on a mission. And coinciding with that athletic mission, he had a mission to return to his neighborhood and to help. As soon as he was eligible by NCAA rules to start raising money, he did, and returned with a charitable organization, a tour drive, a tour, um, toy drive, which you alluded to. This has become a worldwide story, and now that tour drive is somewhere around $7 million. That's amazing. So just an incredible outpouring of support and reach across the country a little bit as you said internationally and just people taking up his story and it's it's an incredible one he's a, he's he's an incredible person and we're so happy that we have this uh, mini miracle on our hands now and coach totten very close to his community as you said very close to pittsburgh very close to his family demar had opportunities as i understand i heard you in an interview a few days ago you said that he had opportunities to go and play pretty much anywhere he wanted in college, but he decided to stay home because he'd also be an influence on his siblings by doing so. That's a remarkable young man at a very early age, adopting a very mature attitude toward life. Yeah, he had about a two-year-old brother at the time of his commitment. He could have gone to Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, Ohio State, just about anywhere. But he wanted to be a role model in that young man's life. And I'd like to think just the other day he probably hugged the, you know, hugged his little brother, and and, and just the joy of, of being able to do that again. So if you're wondering what that was, that was a helicopter gunship, minigun, firing massive bursts 
in Mexico as the Mexican military and the Mexican government literally is fighting a war with the drug cartels. It's been a war, and it's ongoing. And this week, virtual open warfare broke out as Ovidio Guzman, the son of cartel kingpin El Chapo Guzman, was captured by Mexican forces. This after the president of Mexico had ordered the release of Ovidio in order to avoid continuing assaults by the cartel gunmen. And Canadian travelers, as you know, you've been listening to the news, you've been watching it on globalnews.ca, Canadian travelers were urged by the federal government to shelter in place in Mexico. And earlier in the week, so I think it was actually New Year's Day, drug cartel members in armored vehicles attacked a Mexican state prison and the municipal police station in Juarez, just across the border, From El Paso, Texas, 19 people were killed, 24, including a cartel boss, were freed by these heavily armed gunmen, or they just escaped. And just days from now, President Biden, Prime Minister Trudeau, will meet with Mexico's President, Andres Manuel López Obrador, in that major North American summit. So what's going on in our USMCA partner country when drug cartel killers attack government installations? These drug cartel killers are often former members of the military, former members of special forces. Ian Grillo is a journalist and author living and reporting in Mexico. In his book, Blood Gun Money, Firearms Trafficking Along America's Iron River, and it's one heck of a read, I'll tell you, Ian chases down how America's arms and gangs, and rather how America arms gangs and cartels, and he talks to arms makers, street corner thugs, hitmen, gun buyers and sellers, and victims as well as perpetrators of gun violence. It's a blood gun money. Ian joins us from Mexico. Ian, thank you very much for making time for us. What's it been like in Mexico this week? Well, it's been, it's been a crazy week. But, I mean, I've, I've lived in Mexico for 22 years now, and there's been many crazy weeks like this, it's sad to say. I mean, you know, with this, this latest thing that happened, and it, it, it's the size of this is kind of hard to take in, the dimensions of this, when you have hundreds and hundreds of hitmen from a drug cartel blockading roads, taking over a city. They even uh, fired at passenger planes, and uh, uh, there was passengers hiding under their seats. And then 3,500 soldiers against them, you know, a a gun battle with 29 dead, uh, 10 soldiers and 19 hitmen. And it's become kind of, you know, one of of many times that's happened. And it's, uh, um, yeah, it's pretty shocking stuff. Um, but it seems like you know you have to change the the fundamentals of this problem to try to make make any progress. And one could hope at this meeting between the three amigos, as they say, the Canadian, uh, Mexican, and American leaders this this next uh, week, they could try and talk about what to do about this. Yeah, in in your book, in uh, Blood Gun Money, you write, and I'm quoting you here: In the two decades I've been living in Mexico. I've watched the bloodshed rise like a tidal wave, destroying too many lives, and with them the broader hopes of the nation. It's very difficult to to understand that we have, you know, we live in Canada, so we're thinking of what's going on in the streets of Mexico. You have these cartels and their, their hired hitmen who are, am I correct about this, often former military, including special forces? Aren't the Zetas, isn't the Zeta cartel, weren't they formed by special forces? Yeah, they were. They were. Yeah, they certainly there was. Uh, the Setas were were special force soldiers who defected effectively and, and became cartel hitmen. Uh, and then you've got all kinds. I mean, you know, among the, the hitmen, you can get like young kids from villages 
from from the poor barrios, ex-police, ex-special forces, all kinds of people can be in the ranks of these soldiers. I mean, many of them have died. I mean, you've had 300,000 uh, murders in the last decade in Mexico. A lot of that, yeah. there's a lot of hitmen have been killed or imprisoned, and there's still more and more who keep on coming out there. And the cartels can pay a lot more money than the government or the army or the, army or the police forces. That they can, and, and that was, you know, you had even one, one cartel at one time put up signs, adverts, saying, uh, you know, are you in the army? You know, ex-army, come and join us. We'll give you better pay. You know, actually put, you know, big banners up advertising that for them. Although, as, as well, sometimes you get these, these hitmen who are paid pretty low amounts of money. And, and I've interviewed uh, many hitmen over the years in Mexico and further down in Central and South America. Um, you know, I found people who, who commit murders for $50 or $100 or on kind of weekly wages. And so, so life becomes very cheap um, in this kind of mass, mass level of killing that we've seen here. What do they tell you when you talk to them? I, I tend to try and get the life stories of people. So I, you know, I you know, start like, where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? How did you first get involved in organized crime? And their stories vary. Um, I find often the case with the hitmen themselves, the kind of lower level um, hitmen, um, they're often from kind of poor backgrounds, difficult backgrounds, um, and have some kind of, you know, grudge. Uh, and one higher-ranking guy who said he recruited hitmen so they would often look for kind of troubled teenagers who had certain hate in them. Um, but then also I've you know, talked to people who are higher-ranking members who are bosses and so forth, and they're often from these same areas, these same neighborhoods or communities, but they sometimes can be from slightly wealthier backgrounds and, and are people who are quite, sometimes quite sm- relatively smart and educated in these places. I mean, pretty smart people. I mean, El Chapo, who came from a, a mountain village, but then you know, went on to manage, you know, according to Forbes, he had was worth a billion dollars. So they're obviously managing a huge amount of money um, as well, and a lot of people, a lot of political connections, and obviously some very talented people as well inside these organizations. Yeah, and when, when we think about uh, what was done in Mexico, where the president of Mexico ordered the release of El Chapo's son, Ovidio, in order to avoid continuing assaults by cartel gunmen, you effectively have a national government backing down from the, the cartels. Now, I gather and I've followed you uh, on Twitter religiously for quite some time at Ian Grillo on Twitter. That's I-O-A-N-G-R-I-L-L-O. This past few days, the Mexican government has fought back. But it, prior to that, it was a national government backing down from the cartels, wasn't it? Yeah, and very symbolic uh, that so what happened in 2019, the, a, a group of the military special forces uh, captured the son of El Chapo, or Bidigo's man, in a house in the city of Culiacan. And then when all the hitmen came out, they were like pinned down in the house. And these raging gun battles ensued, and, and then the hitmen also went to the, the place, the quarters where the, the wives and children of the soldiers lived and started attacking them. Uh, and started kidnapping various soldiers who were just driving around and so forth. And the government backed down after four hours of this. And that was a, a real humiliation, I think, for the Mexican government, the Mexican military. Uh, and it made, it made the president particularly look very weak or corrupt or both. Uh, and in fact, when I talked to there was a family of some Americans uh, who were killed here, nine American women and children uh, from the Mormon community who were killed in 2019, and they actually got a meeting with the president, and he told them that the thing he regretted most 
in his presidency was that release. So what happened on Thursday morning when they located the same guy again in, in a, a little village in the state of Sinaloa, I went in there with a much smoother operation starting very early in the morning, and then they whisked him away by plane before the hitmen could really take to the streets, and it was more of a rural area, so they had you know, less, less able to be pinned down. It was kind of slaying the demons for that 29 operation somewhat. Uh, and you are seeing Mexico, Mexico become more militarized. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, the violence is still still crazy, uh, and there's still many issues, including the fact that the cartels have a, a basically unlimited supply of guns coming down from the United States. Ian, so you spoke with, let's talk about the guns, because that's what gives the cartels the power. You spoke with arms makers, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms in the United States. You talked to gun buyers and sellers, street corner criminals. You talked, as you told us, with the cartel hitmen. How do they fit into the Iron River? And can you maybe start by sharing how firearms make their way from the gun manufacturers to the hands of the cartel hitmen who have been involved in this war with the Mexican government as recently as yesterday? Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about guns as opposed to, uh, you know, packs of heroin and packs of fentanyl and so forth, which the drug traffickers move, is that guns, you, you know, can have serial numbers on them and you can trace them. And even when they file the serial numbers off, they can often restore them. So we can have some of the paths of these guns very clearly. And I did one tracing of uh, some guns from a, a murder scene in Mexico which was actually used to kill an American agent. Uh, and trace them back through the cellars into the factory. So in this case, um, this was a, a pair of AK-47s, which were made in Romania, were then imported into the United States uh, by a company which has offices in Vermont and warehouses in Vermont, taken down to Texas, where they were sold, uh, uh, one at a gun shop, um, where somebody walked in and bought 10 AK-47s, 10 of the same AK-47s, which they'd pre-ordered, um, and one at a gun show. Uh, and then they were taken from there, were then taken for the cartels. Now, this, these buyers are known as straw buyers, straw purchasers, who are people who have a clean record and will buy the guns for criminals. And one of the things that jumps out is that they're not even paid very much. This guy who bought 10 uh, AK-47s for the cartels he was paid $600 for that purchase, so 60 bucks a gun. Not a huge amount of money considering how much death they can cause. But the reason is, is that the, the actual punishments are very low for the straw purchases. They're only given uh, normally suspended sentences. The crime is lying on a form. And so when you, what I want to get into is, it's very interesting, is with the thing of firearms as opposed to drugs, because they're kind of overseeing a legal industry and because of the a lot of disputes around guns in the United States. There's very weak laws in terms of fighting the trafficking itself. And then once they get them over to the border, they can drive them quite easily into Mexico. And anyone who knows the border will know it's actually pretty easy when you're driving south. You can often drive there. They normally hide the guns in things like fridges and, and cookers and that kind of thing to take them into Mexico. Yeah, and you're right in uh, Blood Gun Money about uh, the, the guns that are brought into Mexico, including the 50 caliber rifle, which can penetrate and, if I understand correctly, destroy light-armored military vehicles. 
Yeah, the, the 50 cows, and there was four 50 cows captured by the military in the hands of cartels in this gunfight on Thursday. They've been using these a lot. Uh, they're kind of one of the most striking weapons because they're so obviously really weapons of war. Um, there's not a lot of use for a 50 cow to go hunting. I mean, I, I did, I, when I went to one of these big uh, firearms uh, wholesale shows, the shot, the shot show in, in, in Las Vegas, the biggest firearms show in the world, and there was, you know, people there who were big 50 cal enthusiasts, and somebody was saying that one time they were, somebody was, was trying to hunt a deer with a 50 cal, missed it, but the vibration still, like, blew up and, and like, blew a hole in the, in the deer. They're, they're so powerful, these weapons. But there's still, people can still buy them in stores, particularly in Arizona. They're, they're paid more than straw buyers for those things, like $500, because the guns themselves could be $10,000 plus. But people, sometimes you get, like, you know, young kids, 22-year-olds, with a bit of big pile of cash buying these things, um, or some like housewife that doesn't really know what she's asking for with a bit of paper saying, oh, well, well that weapon, please. Kind of things that should really raise alarms. This is not hobbyists um, or, or people buying these for self-defense. It, it, it's criminals buying these to use them to fight law enforcement, to, to intimidate civilians, and to help them traffic drugs in turn to Americans. So what happens now? What's what's going to happen? You have El Chapo's son arrested after the president of Mexico let him go to avoid bloodshed. So now he's arrested. I don't imagine the cartels are going to take that easily. Is there going to be a continuing of... Well, how bad will the continuing of the war be between the cartels and the Mexican government? And is there an outside... I mean, is there a chance that the cartels could actually win this thing? Well, the there's certainly fear right now uh, among people that the cartels would do something else, would do some other kind of act of terrorism, effectively, some act against civilians or in revenge for this arrest. Uh, but with the, with the, another big issue is that the drugs are coming north and coming forward, uh, you know, the huge amounts of fentanyl, particularly in crystal meth, who are killing a huge amount of people in the United States. I mean, in 2021, there was 107,000 overdose deaths, and that's a, a big record. Um, it's also really notable to me that in Canada, um, you, you know, it, it, between Mexico and the United States, there's a bit of an argument, you know, Mexico says, well, you guys are bringing the guns to us. The United States says, well, you guys are bringing the drugs to us. Well, Canada, the third partner, in some ways suffers both. It gets both the American guns, illegal guns, and the drugs that come from Mexico end up in Canada. So you, there is a certain suffering of both up there in Canada. Um, but uh, this, this is, the situation is ongoing. I mean, either way, this is ongoing. This is not disappearing tomorrow. Uh, and unless, and there's no easy solutions, but you know, this is something which you'd hope, as I said, that Trudeau, uh, Biden, and Lopez Obrador will talk about when they meet on Monday and Tuesday. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach 
with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. If you ask Canadians and it's been done, what's the number one issue in this country? Economics? Economy? Inflation? Interest rates? Nope. Not number one. Healthcare is the number one issue in this country. This is where we quite often hang our emotional hats, if you will, in Canada. Our national healthcare system, this is what we're proud of, but our national healthcare system is in really significant disrepair and under massive stress. We've talked about this. We've talked about it with guests, including the two guests who are about to join me. And we know that Canadians who are ill, who present to a doctor, or present to a hospital, or present to an emergency room, often have to wait long time, far longer than they should, for diagnosis, and may find their treatments unavailable simply because of the numbers of patients who have accumulated. So it's the number one issue. And joining us are uh, the immediate past president of the Canadian Medical Association and the current president of the CMA, Dr. Catherine Smart, is the immediate past president, and uh, she's a Yukon pediatrician. She's also worked in major urban and rural hospitals. Dr. Elika Lafontaine is the current president of the CMA and the association's first indigenous president, and he's listed in the Medical Post's 50 Most Powerful Doctors. Dr. Smart, good to have you with us. I always ask Dr. this. How are you? I'm well, Roy. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm well. Somebody has to ask doctors how you are. How are you, Dr. Lafontaine? I'm great. I'm great. You know, Dr. Smart and I have talked about uh, healthcare quite a bit. It's the first time us both being on the same interview. So it's this pretty special for me. Well, I'm glad we could do this. And it just occurred to me the other day that you've both given me very straight answers when I'm asked about healthcare. And it's not just me asking, it's the people of this country asking, where are we? What do we need? Where are we going? How reliable is our healthcare system and what does it need? So let's begin. And maybe you can just talk to each other. I'll step aside for a moment. Would you just share with us, please, how you both identify the difficulties, the challenges that this healthcare system faces, and what does it need? I know people, we constantly talk about putting more billions of dollars into the healthcare system, but it's more than money, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe I'll, I'll start off before turning it to, to Dr. Smart. The conversations that we're having are the same conversations that we've been having 10 years ago. And I, I think we continue to get drawn into the wrong focus when it comes to healthcare change. You know, we, we are talking about public versus private pay now. You know, there's a big rush to replace the family doc with someone else in the same sort of siloed, isolated practice pattern. You know, there's a rush to bring in new technology when old technology would do as, as good of a job. You know, the, the real focus, I think, is, is a shift towards seamless versus fragmented care. You know, how do you, how do you help a patient? navigate their way through the healthcare system, knowing what's going on in real time. You know, Air Canada gives me a text when my flight is boarding, but we can't do the same for patients when they're ready for their appointment or to update them about where they are on the wait list. You know, moving towards team-based care is something that both Dr. Smart and I have talked quite a bit about. And, you know, this idea of, of moving beyond our 13 siloed jurisdictions in this country, our 13 separate health systems, and towards a more collaborative approach to policy and regulation, you know, these are the places that are really going to make a big impact. But I, I see us getting drawn into the same old conversations. Dr. Smart? And I'll just 
Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I think, you know, if you kind of pull out uh, one of the themes there of what Dr. LaFontaine's talking about is that we're missing a focus really on on people in the healthcare system. And I would argue that it's both the, the focus on patients and their experience um, and how we're leveraging the system and technology to create a, a positive and impactful experience for patients. But equally important is, is the experience of providers. And I think fundamentally, partly why we're failing right now is our system's not designed to prioritize people whether patients or providers, and that lack of focus on that has often led to, to emphasis on other things that are less important. And until we sort of get back to, to that question of how do we create a seamless experience for patients and providers, one where people can get the care they need, it's accessible, they know what's going on with their care, and providers can get people where they need to be in a timely way, we're not going to be able to achieve high-quality health care or a system that, that really delivers for anyone in a meaningful way. So if I were to ask you, and I will, what should the patient do who's feeling terribly unwell and is, um, I don't want to use the word shunted, but close to being shunted from pillar to post within the system because it's so overstressed and maybe sent home without a proper diagnosis. What are the options that are available to patients who have great concern right now? Fair question? It is a fair question, and, and I would say I think it's a really important question, and I think it, that that question fundamentally is why healthcare right now is ranking as a top concern for Canadians, as I think many Canadians are in that situation of being fearful of what will happen to them if they have a serious health problem. Um, and right now, I think particularly for that one in five Canadians without a family doctor or a medical home, the fear of ending up in that situation is very real because they're without a provider to really quarterback their care and to make sure that they're getting what they need in the system. Um, so right now, you know, for folks in that in that position, their, their options really are limited is the reality of it. Um, if they're acutely ill, of course, they can access care in an emergency department. Uh, but as we know that right now, now is, is challenging in and of itself. Um, and, and there's, of course, walk-in clinic options and some walk-in virtual care options. But the reality is none of those things are optimal for people that have serious medical problems or any sort of chronic illness that needs ongoing coordination or follow-up. Um, and, and I worry for Canadians that are finding themselves in that situation. And, and, could, and could Dr. LaFontaine or myself guarantee they're going to get optimal care right now, given the limitations in the system? I, I think it would be hard to say that that's the case. And again, it's not for a lack of desire of the providers in the system who want to give people excellent care. It's that, that the system is fragmenting so much that it's hard to ensure that experience for every patient. Dr. LaFontaine, what do we do? You know, I, I'll carry on with, with what Dr. Smart is saying, and I, I'm 100% on, on the same page as her. You know, Dr. Smart was one of the first people to talk about the collapse of the healthcare system near the end of her term last year. You know, we we did not confront the reality of how we are on the edge or falling off the edge when it comes to health systems in this country. And the reality is when you, you don't deal with a crisis, the crisis continues to expand until it consumes everything around it. And we're not seeing this happen evenly across all health systems. And this isn't to catastrophize the situation, but we, we have to be clear with patients in certain places there isn't an option beyond what's right in front of you. You know, a, a year ago, we could talk about, you know, different options, uh, going to see your community family physician, uh, seeing allied provider like a nurse practitioner, going to a walk-in clinic, going to emergency and using that as kind of your entry point to get into the, the medical system. But all those those streams are overwhelmed right now. And so what, what do patients 
have as far as options right now. I, I think this is where providers and patients need to be very united. We we have to call on our political leaders that we need immediate shifts towards these types of providing care that we know work. Mm-hmm. You know, team-based care unlocks an enormous amount of access for patients. You know, you're not in a bottleneck to see a specific person. You're, you're matched with the person who can solve your problem. You know, we, we have places in, in Canada that this works really well right now, primary care networks in Alberta, family health care teams in Ontario. But making sure that governments across the country invest in these types of team-based care is actually the solution. I, I don't think the the options of, of switching from stream to stream anymore is is viable at the stage of the collapse that we're at right now. You know, I hear you use the word collapse, and I know why you're using it, because it is in collapse. When we have 5 million Canadians without a family doctor, as, as you were speaking about that, Dr. Smart, I was thinking about kids in those families. An entire family has no family physician. You're a pediatrician. What does somebody do who, what does a family do who does not have access to a family doctor? Yeah, as you said, uh, uh, Dr. Lafontaine, there are walk-in clinics and there are emergency rooms, and but it's it's a it's a, a net loss of the very first link in the in the healthcare chain. The question I have is this: If we have these thirteen jurisdictions, healthcare jurisdictions, is there cohesion between them? Um, what what's what's the reality? And and if if it doesn't exist in this country, if there isn't a formula somewhere in Canada that we might look at nationally, adopting all of us, is there a, is there an out of country, out of Canada formula that might be worthwhile? Doctor Lafontaine, would you take that on? You know, it's it's a really important question. I, I think it's a question that people are migrating to more and more as they realize just how bad things have gotten. We often compare ourselves against European countries. And the first place that that patients' minds usually go is, well, we need a hybrid system. You know, we need a mixed public-private system. But here's the part that I actually think we need to emulate from the European countries. None of them have our 13 separate jurisdiction model. They they have a pan-national model when it comes to health human resources. They have a national model when it comes to licensure and registration. They have a national model when it comes to having patients be able to go place to place and ensuring that providers and patients are treated the same no matter where you are in the country. And if you look at the discussions going on right now about the National Health Service in the UK, a big focus is on money. But the reason why it's on money is because they've actually fixed the problems we have yet to fix here in Canada. We're still talking about these nationalized approaches in our federation that we haven't, that we've known have needed to change for the past 10 years, but we have yet to put into the work of actually changing them. And so I think that those are the models that we need to emulate. You know, Canada is alone, not only with its publicly funded health system, but even more so in its way that it approaches its nationalized health systems. So we know it's broken. We've just explained that. We know it's broken. We need to fix it. Dr. Smart, what do you say? I think there's a, you know, a few areas that are really critical to focus on when we want to think about, you know, what are some of the fundamental things that are making our system not work? And and I, I think we've identified what some of those things are. You know, one is information sharing. Right now, you know, you're talking about 
you're asking that question, you know, is there coordination across provinces? I mean, the reality is in some cities, there isn't even the ability to share information. There's challenges in sharing information between individual physicians, offices and hospitals and back and forth. Um, there's it's challenges in sharing information across a province um, between provinces, you know, almost impossible. So really, we need to better understand how we're utilizing data and electronic medical records. And we need to really get that solved if we want to see better coordination of care across our country. So that's one huge part. The other part is the human health resource issue. You know, we don't actually really even know how many doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, psychologists, et cetera, we need and where they are and, and what types of people we should be training for the future to create the teams to meet the needs of Canadians. So again, if we want to be coordinated, we need some accountability around who's in those roles, where are they working, how do we distribute them geographically to meet the needs of Canadians. You know, our country is much more challenging in a lot of ways because of the geographic diversity and the, and the distance just between people as when you start comparing, say, to a European country. So we really need to be fundamentally understanding that. And right now we don't have that information. We're not planning for it. And there's there's not that accountability. So that's another sort of fundamental, I think, next step or thing that needs to be solved to start to move towards better solutions. And we need that workforce mobility so that we can get people where they need to be when they need to be there to support our country, particularly given that a quarter of Canadians live in rural areas where the, the need to support medical services in those spaces is much more challenging. So I think there's some fundamental issues there that underpin the system that we need to be thinking about if we really want to move towards solutions. And then I think other values that need to be there is accountability. Uh, what's the accountability in the system right now for the funding that we spend? Um, and again, refocusing the dollars to follow the patient. So we have more activity-based funding and, and more control where patients see the value following them as opposed to global budgets that just often lead to waste and a lack of accountability and not optimizing the resources that are in the system. So I think if we can start to identify what some of these fundamental challenges are, what's working, what's not, uh, where we need to focus for tra transformation, then I think we're going to get closer to designing a healthcare system that's based on the right principles. And the other key principle I think Canadians would care about there is equity. And that's why we do take pride in our system is because it is universal. Uh, but right now it's not equitable and, and we need to be able to think about that as well. We talked about COVID in various forms and where it's headed. This is new what is it, the XBB 0.1.5 mutation. So we'll have um, more detailed information on that for you tomorrow. But I was curious, I was just wondering, how do pharmaceutical companies create new vaccines and boosters and other antiviral treatments for COVID variants um, for a complete age range of Canadians when we don't know until the variant has established often, that it's even present in populations. How does this work? And are governments, and particularly the current federal government, a help or a hindrance? Paul Lucas is the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline in Canada, and uh, he joins us. How are you, Paul? Good, Roy. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. It's been a while since we spoke last. It has been. It's been quite a while. Um, I didn't think I'd be talking with you uh, again. But uh, here we are. Here we are. And, and so let me begin with the question. How does, and you're, you have a science background. You're not solely a successful business leader. How, how do pharmaceutical companies prepare for vaccines and or booster shots for, in this case, a COVID variant when we don't know what the variant is until it's established? Yeah, 
it's it's a challenge. There's no doubt about that. And I'll I'll try not to get too technical on this. Um, but um, the good news is that um, uh, vaccine development for COVID is ongoing. I mean, it it will continue for years to come. Um, if you look at if you look at the regular seasonal flu, uh, it comes back every year, and the companies are continually developing modified vaccines for for flu and the same thing is going on with covid um the the real challenge with covid is and you you kind of nailed it there um the the virus uh mutates so rapidly that it's creating um all of these variants and uh that doesn't usually happen as quickly with influenza uh, but it is happening with covid and um Therefore, the, the development needs to be more rapid um, and more frequent. So there's a continual process going on uh, amongst the companies who produce COVID vaccines to, f- to follow and hopefully predict what kinds of vaccines uh, need to be developed for COVID. And as you know, there's been you know, five to six significant variances of, uh, of COVID. And uh, the good news is that uh, companies know how to produce uh, COVID vaccines now. Uh, I think we've seen that over the last number of years. It's been quite remarkable how quickly vaccines have been developed for the new variants, and they work well. Um, so, you know, you, everybody's familiar with the mRNA vaccines, and there's a, other ways of producing these vaccines, but the companies continually work with uh, WHO, with CDC, with public health, and they're monitoring the environment, the epidemiology of this virus uh, on an ongoing basis to determine, you know, which ones are going to be virulent. Uh, because the reality is, is this, this mutates all the time, and often the mutation isn't, isn't serious. So it's really identifying which ones are going to be serious and therefore which ones uh, we need a vaccine for. And then it's just a matter of... Um, Determining, you know, is it a new variant that needs a new vaccine, or uh, do we just need a booster? Um, should they uh, create combinations of various uh, variant uh, forms of the virus? So that's going on on an ongoing basis, and it's uh, going to go on f- for for the next uh, number of decades, I suspect. Uh, COVID's going to be around a long time, and uh, again. Uh, going back to influenza, the regular influenza that we see every year, um, continual development going on. And in fact, the last pandemic we had, which most people don't remember, is 2009, which was the H1N1 virus. Mm-hmm. That variant is actually in uh, today's flu vaccine that everybody gets. So it's been around a long time and will continue to be around a long time as well. Yeah. Very interesting to know that because you, you wonder how... You know, we're playing catch up with this virus. How do the pharmaceutical companies deal with that? Now, there's another there's a new story today on Global News. Teresa Wright is the reporter. A mucosal vaccine could be a COVID 19 game changer. So, why doesn't Canada have one? Uh, mucosal vaccine. Could you explain to us what that does? I'm sorry, Roy, I just couldn't hear you there. The mucosal vaccine. So, we don't have one, but it could be a COVID 19 game changer writes Teresa Wright on Global News. We don't yeah, have one no, in Canada. I'm not that familiar with that one at this point, but uh, a, a new way of developing vaccines, and that's happening all the time. I mean, you know, mRNA is a whole new way of producing 
COVID vaccines and vaccines in general, and they'll use that technology. There'll be new technologies, uh, cell culture uh, processes, and so on to develop new vaccines going forward. So the whole the whole area of vaccine development is is exploding. Okay, so so how do you respond and react to the concerns that are expressed? And I hear it all the time. If I talk about vaccines or I talk about COVID and I was talking about whether kids should, uh, I was asking the question whether parents had concerns about the kids playing contact sport after what we saw in Cincinnati mm-hmm. on Monday. And we started getting calls from people who wanted to talk about vaccines being negative for, for kids. And it wasn't even the subject, but there's, there's, a, there's a drift toward that. Whenever I have a conversation with people about any number of issues, how do you approach the cynicism that exists toward vaccine development? Paul. Well, it's it's very challenging, and having been in the business for a few decades, um, it, we encountered the same thing with influenza, uh, which we made in the Quebec, our Quebec City plant. It, it is very challenging to stop the you know the the theories that go around about vaccines, and the reality is is that vaccines uh, will not cause the disease you're trying to vaccinate against. Um, and they are highly effective, and the COVID vaccine is highly effective. Actually, it's more effective than, than the influenza vaccine usually. So, you know, I've had many, many, many debates with people uh, about vaccination uh, for different diseases, and it's hard to change somebody's mind um, when they get something in their head about, about uh, you know, various vaccines. Mm-hmm. And the reality is with COVID, you know, if people... Uh, want to reduce the risk of getting COVID, getting sick, um, they should get vaccinated. It will keep them from getting sick or reduce the effects of them getting sick. It will help keep them out of the hospital if they get sick. It will help keep them out of the ICU, and it may even prevent them dying. Um, And so it's important to get vaccinated, and we need to keep getting that message out to people. Uh, the other thing in Canada that we face, of course, is, you know, with our healthcare system, you know, in crisis right now, and I don't hesitate to use that word because uh, it is, we have to understand that one of the reasons is in crisis is because COVID is still out there. People are going into the hospital. They're still going into the ICU. Uh, and it's influenza season, too. So they're going into the hospitals. And, you know, in the U.S., it's not as big a problem because they have a much bigger hospital capacity than we do in Canada. Our capacity is the lowest in the Western world. So, um, you know, we can't afford to have people getting uh, sick <laughs> and having to go into the hospital. No, we so can't. again, the best way to prevent that problem and allow the hospitals to do what they should be doing in terms of other procedures, best way to prevent that um, is to get vaccinated for COVID or get boosted or whatever. But it's, it's a tough, tough story. You yes, know, it to is. To get across to people who are skeptics. And we spoke about the healthcare system with the immediate past president and the current president of the Canadian Medical Association earlier on the program today about the healthcare system. Mm. And they're very blunt. They're very, very direct, very straightforward about where the issues are, where the problems are, what needs to be done, and why it's not being done. Paul, one more question. During our conversations earlier on during COVID, you were quite critical of the federal government, as was I, and their, their lack of performance. Um, you know, news releases and uh, and glossy uh, photographs notwithstanding. Do you feel any f- better, th- any more positive about the work they've done, or are they still dragging, lagging? 
No, I, ha- I have to be honest. I mean, they got off to a terrible start, and they weren't exactly transparent with Canadians about what was going on, and there was a lot of politics in their communications. Um, but now, I mean, their role is to buy vaccines and then to provide them to the provinces so that they can get them into arms. And so that process is working pretty well now. You know, they got past the, well, we should buy a Chinese vaccine, and there were other blips and mistakes, you know, along the way. Um, but that that's rolled out now, and the whole process uh, of purchasing and distributing vaccines for COVID is working pretty well like it does for other vaccine programs. So not bad. Okay. On, the, on the production side, because that was the other responsibility the feds had was Remember, we, uh, uh, the federal government wanted to invest in Canadian manufacturing because we didn't have enough um, back when COVID started. And they invested in new facilities with uh, Sanofi, Sanofi here in Toronto, Novavax in Montreal, Moderna in Montreal, there's a Mississauga facility, Metacago in Quebec City, Saskatchewan. Those are all facilities that they invested in. So that was a good thing. But what, what's next? I mean, you know, I'm a bit of a skeptic um, because they have the federal government has spent billions of dollars on vaccines and on Canadian manufacturing. Both of those things were good. Mm-hmm. But have we heard about, you know, have we, have we gotten a report about what's going on with those manufacturing facilities? Are they actually being built? Are they actually capable of producing any vaccines? Um, you know, we haven't seen anything uh, about that, and I'm not sure if we'll ever see anything about that. But, you know, and they did buy billions of dollars worth of vaccines, and it would be good to know, you know, um, how how much of what we bought did we use? Right. At the end of the day, they bought seven different vaccines, yeah. but we really only used two, right? We used uh, the Pfizer one and the yeah. Moderna one. It's not a about- bit of the AstraZeneca one. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.